If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up with me to Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. We're going to continue our study through the book of Acts that we're calling The Church, where we're learning from the first church some lessons that we can apply to our church so that way we can be the church. And so we're in Acts chapter 9 today. While you're finding your place, let me ask you, how many of you love reading biographies? Any, any biography people? Okay, well, if you don't like reading, you can watch one. That's called a documentary. Um, and if you listen to one on Spotify, that's true crime, okay? <laughs> or if you get one of the little uh, magazines at the grocery store, that's gossip, all right? Uh, any ladies like to read the gossip magazines, okay? If a guy raised your hand, shame on you, all right? <laughs> But, but we love biographies because it, it tells a story. Right now, um, I'm watching a, a few different. I just finished a World War II uh, documentary because I'm getting ready for World War III. Anybody? Come on, somebody. Please, let's pray. Um, and then I uh, finished The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, the GOAT. Anybody else, right? LeBron, no. Uh, Michael Jordan's the GOAT. I want to be like Mike. And right now, I'm watching. I fell asleep last night, but I'm, I'm watching Arnold on Netflix. Okay, I didn't finish it, but I'll be back, all right? Um, and so I love documentaries. I love biographies. I admit, as your pastor, I also like some true crime podcasts as well. Uh, because they tell a story. Well, today we're going to see a story, but I want you to know that what we're going to read is not a biography, but rather it is a, it's a testimony. We're going to read the story about a man named Saul of Tarsus, who's going to become Paul the Apostle. And this is important for us because Acts chapter 9 is a watershed moment in the book of Acts. It's really going to change the, the, the trajectory of where we're heading throughout the, the rest of the book. But not only in the book of Acts, but also in Christianity. Outside of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus... Paul's conversion is probably one of the most important moments in all of Christianity and all of the church, and some would even say all of human history as well, that Paul's legacy towers above philosophers, theologians, politicians, celebrities. Much of what we have today as the Western society can actually be traced back to the writings of Paul in the New Testament. So the abolition of slavery, we get that from Paul's writings the women's rights and, and equality. That, that comes from the, the scriptures. And so universities were started because of Christians who referred back to, to Paul's writing. So education, all of this is paramount to the man that we're going to meet today. His name is Saul of Tarsus, but later in the Bible, he's gonna be known as Paul the Apostle. And so we're gonna read his story, but I want you to know that this is not a biography. This is a testimony. You know what the difference between a biography and a testimony is? It's Jesus. Because a biography is about you. A testimony is about Jesus. A biography is about what you do. A testimony is about what Jesus has done. A biography is about your accomplishments. Everybody come see how amazing I am or what I have done. But a testimony is about Jesus' accomplishments for you on the cross. In a biography, you're the hero of the story. But in a testimony, Jesus is the hero. And this is so important because I believe that today there are people in this room 
that Jesus wants to rewrite their story. He wants to turn your life from living a biography to becoming a living testimony. Not about you, but about him. And not about what you did or what you failed to do, but what Jesus accomplished for you. Saul's story is so important because we get to see how Jesus changes a life. We get to see Saul become Paul. We get to see him as a murderer become a missionary. We get to see a persecutor of the church become a planter and a pastor of churches. And this is why it's important for us to to lean into this because the, the message of Saul reminds us that no one is beyond the grace of God. That no one is too far for the hand of God. That no one can outsin the cross. No one could outrun because the moment you are running away from him, he's already right there waiting for you. And I believe that today there are souls in this room who are going to become Pauls by the time they leave. Because Jesus wants to change your life. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 9. The sermon title today is How Jesus Changes Lives. We're going to read it all up front, make some observations, and then I want to give you five steps of salvation or five ways that Jesus changes a person. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul of Tarsus was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Let's pause right there for just a moment. We need to understand the context if we want to understand the text. There's a lot of people in the room who are new. If you are walking with us, you're new. Um, we're an expository church. With me, nine out of 10 times, we're just preaching straight through books of the Bible here at Redemption. And so we are in Acts chapter nine. This is sermon 28 in our study. We're almost halfway there living on a prayer. Come on. Um, and so, so, so what we've seen so far is after the resurrection of Jesus, He gives the disciples what is known as the Great Commission. And Acts version of it says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Christianity started in Acts chapter 1 with 11 men. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God fell. Peter preached. Pentecost happened. 3,000 people responded and were baptized. And so the church begins to grow. By Acts chapter 4, we're up to 5,000 men plus women and children. By up to Acts chapter 9 in Jerusalem, five years later, the church could be anywhere about 30,000 plus people. But then persecution happens. The religious leaders and the Roman officials, they were opposed to the, to the church. They see him as blasphemers. And so they begin to arrest him, beat him, throw him in prison. Even one of them in Acts chapter 7, we met. His name was Stephen. He was murdered. And behind all of this persecution, it is revealed there is a ringleader. In Acts chapter seven fifty eight, we meet him. His name was Saul. Here's what the scripture says. Acts seven fifty eight. Then they cast him, that Stephen, out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. In Acts 8, 1, verse 1 through 3, it says this, And Saul approved of his execution. Saul oversaw the murder of the Christians, arresting them, beating them, charging them with blasphemy and crimes. And then on that day, there was a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles, verse three, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering in house after house, and he dragged off the men and women, and he committed them to prison. That word ravaging in the Greek, it gives the context that uh, like a wild dog who's tasted blood. The death of Stephen didn't satisfy his hatred. It only exasperated it. He got a taste of it and he wanted more. And so then he began to hunt down men and women, which was unheard of. That only shows how sadistic Saul actually was, that he would hunt down the women and children to throw them into prison. He was ravaging after the church. And then that's when Saul has an encounter with the Lord. Here's how the story goes. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters in the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found anyone who belonged to the way, early Christians were called the way. They're not called Christians until a few more chapters in the book of Acts. But at this moment, they're called the way because Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father, but through him. And so they're called followers of the way. Here's what continues to happen. Um, he was a, that he would, might find the men or women, and he'd take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He's on a mission to destroy the church. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly, oh, I love that word. Suddenly, everything changes. One moment with Jesus can change a life. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he, re he replied, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul, they stood there and they were speechless. They heard a sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. Jesus got his attention, amen? Jesus was trying to capture the attention of Saul. And I believe that today he's wanting to get our attention to. This is why you need to recognize the difference between a biography versus a testimony. Because when we read this, we recognize that Saul is not the hero of the story. See, oftentimes when it comes to Christianity and the Sunday school lessons we learn, we, we look at characters in the Bible like Paul and we think, oh man, that's Paul. I'll never be like Paul. And we kind of glorify Paul to this, to this place as if he's this otherworldly super saint hero that, that, that we could never be like. But if you read through the scriptures, you'll recognize that, that Paul is always pointing people to Jesus. He's never pointing people to himself. You recognize that when we read through the book of Acts, these people may be the characters, but they're just supporting actors in the great story of Jesus. 
Paul may later become the central figure, but he is not the main character in the book of Acts. Jesus is the main character. And Saul recognizes that he's not the hero of the story, but rather Jesus. And it's not about him. Rather, it's all about Jesus and what Jesus has done for him. When you're living your life, do you live your life like a biography or a testimony? Is it about you or is it about what Jesus has done for you? We have to understand the difference between living a biography and living a testimony. And I believe that God has sent you here in his love and in his grace to rewrite your story, to help you understand who he is and what he has done and what he wants to do in your life. That no one, no matter who you are, where you're at, what you've done, is beyond the love and the grace and the compassion that comes from Jesus, that he loves you, he cares for you, and he wants to change your life. There's a a myth that's going around in the the culture today that, that says, because God is love, and we hear that all the time, oh, God is love. Because God is love, then everybody is going to be saved or everybody is going to to go to heaven. But I want you to know that that's not what the, the Bible actually teaches. Here's what the Bible says, that God desires that none shall perish, but that all would reach everlasting life, but some just still perish. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but rather to, to save. But that doesn't mean that everybody is saved. We are not saved simply by being born. We are saved by being born again. We are not saved by our good works, our good deeds, living a good, virtuous, moral life, posting the right things on Twitter. How are we saved? We are saved when we repent of our sins, place our hope, trust, and faith in the lordship of Jesus. That is when he forgives us, that is when he saves us, and that is when he changes us. Listen, guys, the good news is not that God will save everyone, but rather that God will save anyone. It's not that God will save everyone because he won't, but that God will save anyone because he will. It doesn't matter where you're at, who you are, what you've done. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your color or your ethnicity or your gender. It doesn't matter your sin or your preferences. It doesn't matter your income. It doesn't matter what state nor nation you are from. He will save anyone from the lowest of the low, from the depths of our depravity. He will reach from heaven down down into our hearts at the darkest moments of our lives. He will love you and save you and forgive you and he will change you. He will save anyone who comes to him. Saul is a reminder that he will save anyone. And this is important because there are people in this room and there are people in your life who feel like they're too far for God. There are people who feel as if God will never love them, as if their sin is too great, as if their their past is too damaging, that they would not be welcomed, not only by Jesus, but into a church. So they wonder all the time, can God save me? Can God love me after the things I've done, after the life I've lived, after the things I've said? And I want to say resoundingly, yes, he can change 
anyone. And Saul's story is a reminder of our stories. So let me give you five ways from the text that we see that um, change happens. It starts here with calling. Look what it says right here. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. Even while he was persecuting the church, Jesus was pursuing after him. Even while he was breathing out murderous threats, Jesus was still loving him, he was still calling him, was still chasing after him, even in the darkest moments of his life, which is why later Paul would write in Romans 8, for I loved you, my son, at the darkest. Jesus is calling him. And Saul's story is our story. This is how the story goes. While he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues to Damascus so that if anyone be found there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly... A light from heaven flashed all around him. This is the, the first step of our salvation. It's, it's calling. Question, is there anything that Saul did in order to be changed? No. While he was breathing out murderous threats, that's when Jesus showed up in his life. Saul wasn't looking for Jesus because last time I checked, Jesus isn't hiding. It's like, where's he at? I don't know. He's hiding somewhere. No, Jesus isn't hiding. Saul was resisting Jesus, opposing Jesus. He was murdering Christians, burning churches, arresting them, throwing into prison until suddenly Jesus showed up and Jesus reached out to him and Jesus began to call him. How many of you are grateful that we serve a God who, who, who finds us in our darkest of moments? Here's the truth is that God initiates, we respond. That God initiates salvation. That God is pursuing after us. God is loving us. Even when there was nothing lovely in us, he loved us. When he knew the worst of us, he still loved us. When we were at our darkest of moments, he shines the brightest of lights. This is why he would tell us that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. God is initiating. He's reaching out to you. He's trying to get your attention. He's calling you. And not everybody's going to get a bright light and a loud voice. But today you're getting that soft and gentle whisper in your heart right now. You feel him. You hear him. You sense him. He's, he's saying, follow me. Come to me. I'm calling you. Not everybody gets a bright light. But that doesn't mean nobody gets a bright light. We have a guy in our church who died of a heart attack at the age of 50. They pronounced dead. Ten minutes. They resuscitated him and he came back and he, he said that he saw a bright light. And Jesus visited him during that moment. I have no reason to believe that he lies because I see his life. And for the last 10 years, he's dedicated himself to following Christ. God turned him from a mean, cruel man into a soft and tender man. We have missionaries overseas in Muslim countries 
who report that there are Muslims who are converting to Christianity because in their sleep they're having visions of a man in bright light touching their shoulder. They said, who are you? He says, Isa al-Masad. It's Jesus in the Quran. And Jesus is revealing himself to them. And then they go and they plant churches. We actually have missionaries right now, right here in the room. You're missionaries to Muslim countries right there. changes people. Or maybe it's coffee with a coworker. Maybe it's that annoying guy at the gym who keeps inviting you to church. Uh, maybe it's a small group leader. Maybe it's your children today after Redemption Kids are going to come home and ask you about Jesus. My daughter Esther, Jesus is calling her right now. Every day it's conversations about Jesus. Every day, she's, can I become a Christian? She said, Daddy, I want to give my life to God. She's six. I pray that she doesn't have to go through the things I went through. To know, to know Jesus. Maybe your calling is like Brandon Stacy, one of the elders here in our church. 18 years ago, he came to a Bible study at, at our apartments, he walked in with his girlfriend one way, he walked out different. And now he's a leader in our church, an elder, my best friend. Maybe your story's like Ashley's, my wife. She'd been out of church since she was a little girl. Her parents divorced, childhood trauma, abuse, addictions, partying, drugs, sex, rock and roll, dating a loser boyfriend, that would be me. <laughs> and, and one night, she was sitting in her room, and all of a sudden, she had this desire to listen to an old song she hasn't heard since she was a little girl. And she put in the CD. At two o'clock in the morning, the Holy Spirit flooded her room. And she prayed. She gave her life to Jesus. And he was like, me, you're a little more stubborn. And Jesus hasn't been calling you for one event, but for your whole life. And you resist him. Jesus began calling me when I was sitting in a jail cell because of possession of crystal meth and multiple counts of cocaine. I got arrested and my grandparents wouldn't bail me out after a DWI and so they gave me this Bible and I sat in a jail cell for months and I just sat there and read the Bible until my court date. I got out and I, I didn't want to follow Jesus still so I went right back to my old life. And then Jesus called Ashley, but Ashley invited me to church, and I thought she was cute, so I decided I would go. It was the last place that I wanted to go. But there's something that happened in that service. It wasn't the sermon. It wasn't the worship. It was the love of God reached down into my heart. And I went down to those altars, and I gave my life to Jesus, and my life has been changed. What did Saul do? Nothing. What did Ashley do? Nothing. What did I do? Nothing. Oh, but Jesus was pursuing us. Jesus was reaching out to us. He was calling after us to follow him. He initiated because we serve a God who loves us even when we are unlovable. While we were sinners, Christ died for you. God initiates. We respond to the love of God, which leads to number two. It's conviction. 
Look what happens next in the story. Here's what we see. It says, he fell to the ground and heard a voice cry out to him. Uh, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He said, I am Jesus with whom you're persecuting. I want you to notice something. Jesus right here, he puts his finger on Saul's sin. He doesn't excuse his sin. He doesn't justify his sin. He doesn't diminish his sin. He doesn't, he doesn't say, that's your truth, Saul. No, he doesn't do that. He points to his sin. He said, why are you persecuting me? See, at this point, Saul doesn't think he's actually doing anything wrong. Because the truth is, Saul thinks he's doing good. He thinks he's doing the right thing, which is what makes him so dangerous. Which is what makes him so wrong. See, we have a testimony Throughout the rest of the New Testament, Paul actually refers back to, to this moment in his life before Jesus. And here's what he would say in Philippians 3. He said, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, that's his good works in order to earn God's favor, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I now count loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then verse 8, here's what we see. He says, I count them all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. That word rubbish is the Greek word skubalon, which is a fancy way of saying crap. It's waste, it's refuse, it's pointless. It's nothing but a bunch, a big pile of crap. (laughs) What he's saying is all of his good works is worthless. Everything he believed in, valued, the way he lived his life before Jesus, it was nothing, it was wasteful, it was refuse, it was pointless, it was worthless when you compare it to knowing Jesus. Nothing will satisfy you like Jesus will. Nothing will fill that void in your heart like Jesus will. Nothing in this world will come close to loving you like Jesus will. It's all pointless compared to knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord. And Jesus in this moment, he points to his sin and he begins to bring conviction into his life. And here's what he recognizes on that Damascus road. And here's what we all must recognize is that we are all sinners in need of a savior. That there is no one righteous, not even one. Some of you are religious, thinking your good works will get you into heaven. And then some of you are rebellious to where you think that it doesn't matter what you do because it doesn't matter because you are the God of your own life. Whether you're religious or whether you're rebellious, none of us are righteous. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Which is why God sent Jesus to live the life we never could live. To die the death in our place. The death because of our sins. So that through him we might become the righteousness of God. That we have a new life. Because of Jesus. Yes we are sinners. We've all sinned. God sent Jesus to pay the penalty of our sins so that way we might be forgiven. There's conviction that leads us deeper into God's grace. 
But I want to say something for just a moment to bring some clarity to something because there are sometimes people confuse conviction with condemnation. There's a difference. And we have a young church, a lot of new believers. And so sometimes you can hear a message and you're, you're convicted and then you don't know what to do with that. And so you walk out and then all of a sudden you, you begin to feel condemned. I preached a sermon a few weeks ago that was a high conviction message. And because of the way that I worded it, I was not clear. And I worded it in such a way to where people, instead of being good news, they, they took it as condemnation. And I want you to know that that's not my heart at all. We had the majority of people in small groups were like, that was amazing, the mirror, the magnifying glass, that was great. And then there were others who they felt beat up. And I want you to know I'm sorry. I never want to beat you up. I always want to build you up in the gospel. And so what I want to do, I want to take a moment. I want to help you understand the difference between conviction and condemnation. Because there's difference. In John chapter 17, it talks about the Holy Spirit leading us into righteousness. That's godly conviction. And so when we're convicted of our sins, we are to go deeper into God's love and grace. Not to run from it. That's what condemnation is. Let me share with you the difference. The first is, is grace versus guilt. Right? When you hear you're convicted of sin, I don't want you to feel guilty. There's something known as the doctrine of propitiation, which means that the wrath of God is satisfied by Jesus on the cross. That you might think that when God sees you for what you've done, you're guilty. Like he drops the gavel on your life. Guilty. Well, if you are a Christian in Christ, the gavel was dropped on Calvary and you are declared not guilty because the wrath of God has been satisfied by Jesus on the cross. There is no wrath for you. Instead, there is grace that is available. Number two, worthy versus worthless. Condemnation will make you feel worthless. I'm just a terrible, downright, no good, dirty, rotten sinner and I'll never be anything else in my life. I'm worthless. But the gospel comes along and it says that Jesus is our ransom. The, the word ransom is a, is a term for finances. Do you know how much something's worth? It's only worth the price another person's willing to pay for it. And what did Jesus pay for you? His life. That's how much worth you have to him. He said, you are worth my life. Number, number three, one is an explanation, the other is an accusation. Revelation tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren and the sisters, right? And that's all he does all day is just accuse you. Conviction doesn't accuse you, but it does explain the situation you got yourself in. It's not an accusation, it's an explanation. Here's where you went wrong, here's how we get back on track. That's good. See, Jesus tells, the, the, the Bible tells a story about Jesus where, where there was a group of religious leaders, they, they found a prostitute and they were going to stone her. And they all grabbed their stones and Jesus walked up and he said, you who without sin cast the first stone. And they dropped their stones and they walked away. And then he turns to the woman and he says, where are your accusers at? There are none. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. One explains the situation, one accuses the person. Here's the next one that we read. It's joy versus grudge. Condemnation produces anger, bitterness, and resentment. Oh, but... but 
Conviction brings about joy. Why? Because you get a second chance and a third chance and a fifth chance and a 50th chance because his mercies are new every single morning and he casts your sins as far as the east is from the west and you are a new creation in Christ Jesus and the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's joy that comes from conviction, which leads to number five, maybe salvation versus shame. Condemnation makes you want to walk around in shame. It's the same thing that, that had Eve and Adam run from God in the garden. It was shame, and they dressed themselves in garments of shame. But conviction that leads to salvation is the picture of the church in the book of Revelation where God removes the outer garments and dresses you in robes of white and in righteousness and garments of praise because your sins have been forgiven. You have been washed clean. You have been saved conviction leads you to Jesus to lean into his grace and his goodness and to redirect your life so don't walk away feeling conviction or condemnation but recognize that conviction is a gift and a blessing God uses to bring about change in your life well number three we recognize this is that confession. Look what he says. Who are you, Lord? Bright light, knock him off the horse. Here's the loud voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul asked him. Here was the response. I am Jesus with whom you are persecuting. Notice here that, that Saul in the moment recognizes immediately this is something different. It's like this ain't just some apostle. This isn't just some religious leader, Roman official, This isn't some prophet or he didn't even get an angel. He recognizes that there is something different. There is an authority that is behind this. There is a a glory. There is a weight. Something's different. So he, he calls out to him and he says, who are you what? Lord, what does that mean? Lord is master. Lord is authority. Lord is a position of glory. Because up until this point, Saul was living as if he was his own Lord. And now he recognizes there is another Lord, and it's not me. This is when his life changes from a biography to a testimony. Because the biography is about you. Testimony is about him. And then he he makes a confession of faith. He says, Lord. Jesus is Lord. I have to think back to if later in life he was writing the book of Romans, he didn't think to this moment when he writes Romans 10 9. He says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you Will, not you may be, not you could be, not possibly, but you will be saved. How are we saved? Confessing with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved by submitting and surrendering our life under the Lordship of Jesus. Is Jesus your Lord? See, what we got to recognize is that Jesus is Lord of all. Or he's not Lord at all in our lives. 
We, we can't just submit the areas that we are comfortable with to the Lordship of Jesus. We can't just submit the areas of our life that we don't like to the Lordship of Jesus. We can't just submit the areas that we want to change. We submit all of our lives, and that's how we are changed. And there are, are some people who are, who are wondering, well, how come I'm not growing in my faith? How come I'm not feeling, like, changed? Well, I have to ask you, are you submitting your life under the Lordship of Jesus? Because that's how God begins to change us, by, by not only confessing, but also practicing, living it out. Because Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not Lord of all. Question, is, is Jesus the Lord of your life? Not just on Sundays, that's easy. But what about Monday and Tuesday? What about when you go to work? What about the way that you husbands love your wives and, and wives, the way that you love your and honor your husbands? Is, is, God in the mar- is, God, is God the Lord of your marriage? Is he the Lord of your dating relationships? Is he, is he the Lord uh, of, your, uh, of your children and the way you parent and the way you raise your kids? Is he the Lord of you, you at work? Were you one person at work and you're somebody different at home and you're somebody different at church? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he the Lord of, over your sexuality? Is he the Lord over your, your gender? Is, is he the, the Lord of your finances? Is he, is he the Lord of your reputation? Is he the Lord of your life? Because he doesn't want some of you. He wants all of you. And you can't just have some of him. It's all or nothing. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Saul recognizes there's an authority here. And I'm going to surrender to it. That's an act of Confession. The fourth thing is, is conversion. Look what it says next. Now, get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. It's not just about loving Jesus, but it's about following him. Jesus would say it like this. Why do you say you love me and then don't do what I say? He says here, I will tell you what you must do. Not what you should do, not what, if you want to, not if you're feeling like it. Not if it is convenient for you. He said, I'm going to show you what you, you must do. The men traveling with them, they stood there speechless. They heard a sound, but they did not see anyone. So Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand in Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. This is the, the moment of his conversion that he's seen calling. He's seen conviction. He's made a confession. But now he has to change the direction in which his life is going. This is a physical demonstration of a spiritual truth known as repentance. See, look, he's heading to Damascus to murder Christians, and now he meets Jesus, and now he's going to Damascus to become one. The word repentance is uh, metanoia, which means a, a change of mind. He's changed his mind. It's a change of direction, that he's not heading in the direction that he once was, but he's now going into a, a new direction. That's what repentance is. Let me give you an illustration. I show you this all the time, but I think it's important because, because so many of us, we've heard the word repentance and, and we've come to the conclusion that to repent is a bad word, but repentance is not a bad word. Repentance is a biblical word. Like Jesus, the most loving, gracious, kind, wise person who's ever walked the face of the planet, in the book of Mark, his first words was repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so, we learn that repentance is actually a, a, a great thing. Let me show you what repentance is. Repentance is this, is that your whole life is lived like a biography. It's my life, my will, my word, my want to. Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm living my life in, in my way. Some of you that's religious, some of you that's rebellious, but either way, it's unrighteous. And then you have an encounter with Jesus, a Damascus Road moment. 
And Jesus speaks to you, convicts you, calls you, and then he begins to change you. It's a conversion, going from one way, living a new life in a new direction. That, that your back is now towards sin and now your face is towards Jesus. You're listening to him. You're, you're, you're following after him. It's his word, not yours. His will, not yours. It's his way, not your way. You've had a change of affection. You've had a change of direction, which leads to a change of a new life. This is, this is what repentance is. And for you gotta understand something. Repentance is an invitation to a relationship. Repentance is not a bad word. It's a, it's a biblical word. It's, it's Jesus inviting you to something greater. He's inviting you into a, a better way of living. He's inviting you into the kingdom of God where there is a king who loves you. The world won't love you, but Jesus will. There is a Lord who will save you. You can't save yourself, but Jesus will. He's inviting you to come to know him the way that he loves and cares. His grace, his mercy, his redemption, the salvation that he has for you. He wants for you to be in relationship with him. He wants you to know his word. That's a lamp until your feet and a light unto your path to be filled with his Holy Spirit that will lead you, guide you, and comfort you in your times of need. He wants you to know the church, a family. He wants for you to have a relationship. And the beginning of that relationship is, is a word many people don't like, but it is the only way. It's to repent, to change your direction. It's a conversion as you begin to follow him now. You were heading one way, and then you met Jesus, and everything changes, which leads to the fifth and the final point. It all culminates into change. So Saul, now he begins going to, to Damascus, not to murder Christians, but to become one. And then he runs into a man, we'll learn more about his life next week, his name is Ananias. How many of you know somebody who doesn't know Jesus? Okay, they need to come back next week because we're going to learn how to lead somebody to Jesus. Ananias leads Paul to Jesus, baptizes him, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And I believe God wants to do the same for you. And so what we recognize, though, is this, is that this is the first step in a long journey for Paul. This isn't just an emotional experience he had and then he went back to murdering Christians. No, he had an encounter with Jesus and he was changed from a murderer to a missionary, from a persecutor to a pastor. And many of you today, you're, you're gonna have that moment with Jesus or maybe you have had that moment for Jesus, but it's been a long time. Since you've remembered back to it, I want you to, to recognize that, that salvation is an event, but it's also a journey. And we get to see throughout the rest of the New Testament, Saul's journey as God changes him to the Apostle Paul. And he continues writing, and actually three more times in the book of Acts, we're going to get to see his testimony. He's going to talk about it again and again and again and again. He never gets over this moment. Galatians chapter 1, he tells his testimony to the church in Galatia. And then we see it again in 1 Timothy. Maybe 20, maybe 30 years after this moment. It's one of the last books of the Bible to ever be written. 
and Paul at this time, he has a young protege pastor named Timothy, and he's raising him up, and he's writing a, a book, a letter to him, and this is what he, what he says here. He says in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Though I formerly, formerly, who were you before Jesus? Where were you at when Jesus found you? What was your life like without Jesus? Formerly. I don't know if I could think of a better word. Formerly. Formerly. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you do. mercy. I acted ignorantly in my unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, oh, it overflowed. He didn't just give you enough grace, he gave you more than it needed. With faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That Jesus Christ might display his patience as an example for those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul writes later, he says, out of all of the sinners in the world, I'm the worst. Now at Redemption, we believe in something as the inspiration of scripture, which means that these are Paul's words, but this is God's heart. We believe that the Holy Spirit carried men along as they write the scriptures. And so every word is true, trustworthy. We believe it, but God uses human authors to be able to, to write the scriptures. And as Paul is sitting here writing to young Timothy, he says, I was the chief of sinners, the worst of the worst. The Holy Spirit doesn't stop him. He doesn't lean over and say, now listen, Paul, you got a low self-esteem. I mean, really, you're not that bad. Like I could think of some worse. The, whole, the Holy Spirit lets it stand. He says, yeah, you're the worst. You're the worst sinner in the history of the world. Formerly. But I saved you because there's going to be a lot of people who are going to come to me and they're going to think that they've sinned too much for me to love them. And I'm using your life as a testimony for them. The word testimony in the Hebrew literally is the word ashuth which means do it again with the same power and with the same intensity. See, Paul is not the hero of the story. Jesus is. And Jesus wants to do for you the same thing he did for him. 
you are not too far from God, that his love cannot reach from heaven into your heart right now today. You cannot out the cross. You're not that good. You have not run too far where the moment you stop, he's already been waiting for you the entire time. He can do it again. Formerly. Do you know why redemption, I, I preach out of this Bible every week? This isn't even the translation that I, I preach out of. I have my notes taped inside here. But there's, there's a reason that I do it. It's not because my eyesight is bad. It's because this is the Bible that my grandmother gave me when I was sitting in jail. When God began to soften my heart. And I preach out of this Bible every single week to remind myself that God can save anyone. If he can meet me in a jail cell or Ashley in a room, he can meet you here today.